Um, I get to say Merry Christmas now, right? Because Thanksgiving's in the rearview mirror. That's a good thing. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I always look forward to celebrating the Christmas season. Uh, it's probably my favorite time of year, and last year I was deployed, so I spent Christmas in Dubai, U- United Arab Emirates, which is an interesting place to spend Christmas. I'll tell you about that offline, uh, but we get to celebrate two Christmases this year because we missed last year, right? So I am excited about that. Um, but a- as we start ramping up this Christmas season, um, there always seems to be this tension surrounding it. I, I don't know, maybe that's just me. It, it begins um, building sometime around Halloween, right? Right around Halloween, you start seeing uh, the stores start putting out the Christmas decorations, and, and you'll start hearing Christmas songs, onesie twosies on the radio, and, and that tension just kind of keeps building. And, and what I think is it is, is it's anticipation for all that's coming, Right. And, and it starts really coming hard at Thanksgiving because at Thanksgiving we have that first big gathering of family and we just stuff our faces with turkey and stuffing and, and pie and, and all the rest of that. Um, and as the season continues, the anticipation grows. December 1st comes around and that's today and I, I almost want to pull the room, but I'm not going to. Um, by December 1st, most of us have got the tree up, if, and some of us, that's late, right? Like, like December 1st, you're like, seriously, you're just now putting your tree up? But we've got the tree up, we've got the decorations go- going, we're playing songs in the car, and, and our waistline begins to just expand as we're not able to resist all of that food that somehow the rest of the year we've got the willpower to avoid. Uh, that willpower just disappears at Christmas Uh, For me, the peak of this tension, this peak of anticipation comes on Christmas Eve. Um, As a kid, I think it was because on Christmas Eve, I knew that in the morning I was going to get to open a bunch of presents under the tree. As an adult, it's because I'm actually looking forward to watching the kids open up all the stuff that we got for them. Uh, But either way, as I said, that peak comes at Christmas Eve. So eventually we get everybody to bed. And in the morning, first thing in the morning, like at 5.30 sometimes, the kids are up. Um, Am am I the only one that gets woken up early on Christmas? No, it's it's all of us, right? I did it to my parents. It's a tradition. Uh, But the kids are up. We go and we open Christmas presents that are in the stockings. uh, and, And then we break for breakfast. We have breakfast. We open up the rest of our gifts. And when those gifts are all opened, the day is kind of just chill from there, right? We will have some sort of big Christmas feast. Our family is a a prime rib kind of guy. I get to do that like once a year and I love prime rib. So it's a prime rib feast for us. And and then from there, um, we're watching TV. We're taking a nap on the couch. And sometime, usually around Christmas Eve, the evening of Christmas Day, uh, sometimes it's the day after Christmas, all of a sudden this just kind of sense of kind of, discouragement. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it, it just comes in because like that Christmas is over, right? Have you guys all, all been there before? All of that anticipation, all of the hype, all of the songs, all of the decorations, they're over. It, it, it's, it's not a disappointment because I didn't get the things I wanted to get. It's, it's usually not a disappointment because I didn't get to see friends or family. Sometimes that's it, but that's not all of it. It's, it's a disappointment that's, that's rooted in the fact that, that the Christmas season didn't leave me completely satisfied. It's a disappointment that's rooted in this idea that all of the hype and all of the songs and all of the decorations, and they, they didn't bring the fulfillment that I expected them to bring. So what happens? We, we shuffle along for the next week, and then it's New Year's Day. 
and we make a bunch of promises to ourselves that we're able to keep maybe until mid-February. Some people make it to March. And we start counting the days to Christmas all over again. And before you know it, there will be people saying, there are 352 days to Christmas, right? But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if we could somehow temper all the hype and, and refocus our attention while at the same time actually enjoying this holiday season? That's the goal that we have for you as a church as we celebrate Christmas this year. That's the goal that we have for you as we take time to celebrate this season called Advent. We're going to talk about what Advent is, but quick public service announcement in the back of the room on the round table. We've got Advent guides for you and your family. In there, you're going to find a scripture reading. You're going to find a daily reading plan and, and a little bit of a devotional, if you will, for you to spend time with your family talking about the coming of our Lord. Okay, so that's back there. Grab one of those. I encourage you to use it. Um, but um, I realize that for some of you, this whole idea of Advent is kind of a new thing. Um, so let's talk about it a minute, okay? Advent, um, the word, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is a translation of the Greek word parousia, which, which simply means coming. It's, it's the word that was used to talk about Jesus' coming in the flesh 2,000 years ago. But it's also the word that was used to talk about Jesus' second coming in the future, that's what Advent means. It means coming. And the truth is, um, it's a season that up until recently, a lot of Protestants didn't celebrate. Southern Baptists didn't celebrate it. I grew up in the Assembly of God churches. They didn't celebrate Advent. This was new to me just a few years ago. But the celebration of Advent is something that goes back to the earliest of Christians. We've got official church records from 380 AD at the Council of Garcia, or Gar Sargosa, I don't know why I said Garcia, Sargosa. <laughs> and, and those records talk about how they celebrated Advent. This is something that Christians have been doing for several millennia. And, and so Christians gathered and they, they celebrated the coming of Jesus, but they also celebrated his second coming, looking forward to him coming back and bringing us all to heaven with him. So that's what we're going to do throughout the month of December. Over the next five weeks, uh, if you count today, we're going to talk about Advent. And each week is going to have a certain theme. Today's theme is hope. From hope, we'll move to love, then joy, then peace. And in our last week after Christmas, we're going to talk about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. So that's the plan for Advent. But before we dive into our text here, um, you can grab your Bibles if you got it. I hope you do. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to start. But before we get into that, I want to pray, okay? Um, so Isaiah chapter 6. Yes, I rewound from chapter 9. We'll get there, I promise. We're going to preach three chapters in one day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to get into your word. As we look at your word, would you show us who, the, who this season is all about. Would you speak to each of us? Give us each a fresh word so that we can go out of here encouraged to live throughout this Advent season with you as our focus, with you at the center of our attention. God, we love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So today, like I said, we're going to talk about hope. But to do that, I need to set the stage for you, which is why I've had us turn back to Isaiah chapter 6 we're not starting at chapter 9, uh, because if we want to see what's going on here, why there's hope in chapter 9, we need to see why there's darkness before it. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 6 sets us very early in the ministry of Isaiah, who is a prophet. 
Most scholars agree that he was the cousin of King Uzziah, who was the eighth king of Judah after the separation of the kingdoms into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, Isaiah was a man of influence. And as we come to chapter 6, we see Isaiah having this vision where he's standing before God and God recommissions him to proclaim a message. In in Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 9, we read Isaiah, the Lord tell Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, I don't know about y'all, but like as a pastor, that's not a message that I'd want to have to go proclaim. God's people had gone astray. They were not following the Lord. And as a result, the Lord was going to bring judgment on them. There, There are dark times ahead on the horizon. God's people are about to be utterly wiped out. And if you were to just turn over to chapter seven, a period of about 16 years has passed. And Uzziah's grandson is now sitting on the throne of Judah, a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was not a good king. He he was utterly wicked. In fact, if you were to read in 2 Chronicles about his reign, you would read in 2 Chronicles 28 that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That he even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. I just read that right. He burned his children as offerings to these idols. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So what we're seeing is just two kings later, 16 years have passed by. And we've got a king who's leading his people completely astray from God. And in chapter 7, the judgment that we saw coming in chapter 6 has arrived at Judah's doorstep. The king of Syria teamed up with the king of Israel and and he's come to conquer Judah. So so the Lord sends Isaiah to King Ahaz and, and he has a message for Ahaz. And essentially the message is, hey, don't worry about this. Nothing's gonna happen. Syria's king Rezin, he's just a man. Israel's king Remaliah is just a man. Within 65 years of right now, Israel's gonna cease to exist. So if you don't stand firm in your faith, you'll not be firm at all. That's the message that Isaiah brings to Ahaz. And then the Lord tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz to ask for a sign. So if you flip over to chapter 7 and look at verse 10, we'll, we'll read, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. So Ahaz is offered a sign and in a moment of false piety, he's like, no way, I am not going to ask God for a sign. And he even cites scripture saying, nope, I don't need to. In fact, the Bible says I shouldn't say that. But Ahaz just doesn't get it. 
because Ahaz, it, he's, he's missing the point. The, the Lord did, he's not testing the Lord by asking for a sign because the Lord asked him to ask for a sign. He said, hey, ask for a sign, I'll give it. Ahaz misses the point completely. So, so instead, if we were to continue down to verse 13, we're going to see God respond. And he says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Ahaz doesn't want a sign, but God gives him one anyway. And the sign is a son born to a virgin, and his name is Emmanuel. And that means God is with us. In the midst of this dark period, the prophet Isaiah brings a brief light of hope 700 years before it's fulfilled. And this promise is the sign of a son who's born, literally born God in the flesh. And he's here on earth. Think about that for a minute. We get this brief, bright moment, and then everything goes dark again. The rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 discuss the destruction uh, and devastation that's coming as God tells Ahaz how he will use the Assyrians to utterly destroy their world as they know it. And all of that is really summed up quite well in the last verse of chapter 8, in verse 22, where the Bible says, And they will look, at, look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Years of sin, years of rebellion, years of living from, for themselves, of ignoring God, and the result is that God leaves them to their own devices. He proceeds to enact judgment and allow the Assyrians to come and conquer the chosen people of God. That's the darkness. That's the hopelessness. That's the context for what we're about to read in chapter 9. But before we move forward uh, into this text in chapter 9 where the, the light kept, and thank you, by the way, for, for reading our verses for, for today. Um, before we move into that, we need to zoom out a little bit and make this personal. Because this text is just as much for us as it was for the people of Judah when Isaiah spoke these words. You see, we need to recognize that we too have a sin problem. And just like Judah, our sin separates us from God. Our sin completely leaves us in darkness. Our sin leaves us in a position of hopelessness. But as we move into chapter 9, I want you to recognize that we are not left to ourselves. We don't have to figure this out on our own. We're not abandoned to hopelessness. In fact, as we begin to read chapter 9, I want you to see the dawn of hope. Take a look. We're going to start at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in a later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The promise is that in the midst of darkness and despair, things are going to radically change. Sometimes in the depth of our sin, when, when we feel the weight of it on our lives, it, it seems like nothing but anguish, nothing but pain. And everything we look around and see, everything that's around us just confirms that fact. And that's what's happening here for God's people. Naphtali was the northernmost territory in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, it was located on the northwest banks of the Sea of Galilee. And Zebulun was in South Galilee. And at the time that 
this was written at this point in history, as, as Isaiah is proclaiming this prophecy to Judah, the Assyrians had already invaded. They had already taken over both of these regions and set them, set them up as Assyrian provinces. And the rest of Judah, as, as they looked north and saw the Assyrian invasion coming, everything they saw confirmed their deepest fears. So the people of God at this point really can look around and see nothing but despair. These northern tribes have already been defeated, the prophet is, but the prophet is promising them that out of these northern tribes, these defeated tribes, hope is going to spring. He's saying this despair, this darkness you're surrounded by is about to become a brilliant beacon of hope. Take a look at verses 2 and 3 here. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In the heart of this despair, a great light is dawning. God is promising through his prophet that the land that currently signified everything that was wrong for the people of Judah, everything that had gone sideways, was going to be the land where hope would be renewed. And here's what we need to catch as we look at this. There's, there's two things I want you to see as we look at this text and we talk about this light. The first is that in order for light to be bright, there's got to be darkness that's displaced. How many of you have ever gone to a movie and while you're in the movie, you get that little buzz in your pocket. You get a text message on your phone. Right? When that happens, you've got two options. One, you can ignore that text message and your phone just keeps buzzing in your pocket. I don't know about y'all, I can't do that. <laughs> like, If I get a text message, I've got to check it. It is annoying. When we're driving, I hand the phone to Tamas like, hey, read this, because I can't just like not check my messages. Um, I've got a problem. If you are able to, to ignore that message, you've got my respect, I can't do that. So really that leaves one other option. I can pull out my phone and I can check the message. Now, if you're smart, when you go to the movie theater, before the movie, you dimmed the brightness of your phone all the way down, right? Or maybe you've got that auto brightness function figured out. I still don't have that figured out, but maybe you've got that figured out so that your phone dims. But either way, as you go to check that message, you pull out this phone and, and it's been dimmed all the way down to the point where if you were outside, you wouldn't even be able to see the screen. But when you pull it out, it is incredibly bright. Am I right? That's what this is talking about here. So, so the only option as we check our messages is we see that that, that, that brightness is going to blind us, but, but that's okay. When light arrives, the darkness doesn't get darker. That's the second thing I want you to recognize. The darkness can't fight back against the light. Think about when you're in that movie, right? You, you pull out the phone, and if you've dimmed it all the way down, it still feels like you've got a spotlight shining straight at your face and lighting up the whole row. Am I right? Right? Why is that? Because of how dark the movie theater is. Right? Does the movie theater get any darker as you pull out your phone? No, it just gets brighter. And that's what's happening here for God's people. And when that happens, with the rare exception of when you're in a movie theater, that's a good thing. When I was a kid, I was in an organization called Royal Rangers. Anybody ever heard of that? It's the Assembly of God version of Boy Scouts. And when I was in middle school, we went on this backpacking trip up in the Rocky Mountains in northern Idaho. 
Uh, it was five nights long, and on the last night of this backpacking trip, the, the leaders decided to leave us boys for a survival night. Um, yeah, I, don't, I think it was an excuse for them to go into town and sleep in a real bed and leave us out in the woods. Um, but that night that we were out there, there was no moon, so it was pitch black outside. It was completely dark. Um, so every sound, every rustle of the branches, everything that I heard was terrifying to me. But you know what kept me from freaking out? I had this little two AA battery flashlight. And when I turned that on, everything that I couldn't see became visible. The, the light displaced the darkness, and that brought about joy. And that's what we're seeing here. That's what Isaiah is saying. The, the, the light that's promised, this promised Savior, this promised Messiah, he brings joy. So the prophet continues on into verses 4 and 5, and as he does, he shows them their need to remember that despair that they've been living in is already defeated. It's almost like he's saying, remember, despair has been defeated. Take a look at verses 4 and 5 here. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 4 shows us the threefold defeat of the oppressors, the ones who are causing this despair. The yoke, the staff, the rod were instruments used to dominate and force the people to physically work. It's possible that you could interpret this to, to be a metaphor for showing how the heavy burden of, of taxation and domineering rule was crushing the people of Judah. But either way you see this phrase, you see that the weapons are destroyed in a miraculous way, just like God worked in the days of Midian. That statement, by the way, it's a reference to Judges 6 and 7. If you write in your Bible, I tell you, just write Judges 6 and 7 right next to that. It's good to know when he's pointing back to where to look. And, and when I think about this story, it's, it's the story of Gideon. Um, I always think back to when I was in Sunday school and my teacher, my Sunday school teacher, Miss Gerda, Gerla, sorry, was her name. She used a, a flannel graph to teach us. Y'all know, y'all even know what a flannel graph is. It, it was this high-tech stuff we had back in the 80s. It was, it was this board covered with felt, and it had these little stick figure people that you would stick on, and then they would walk, and so you'd move them over. It was, it was high-tech stuff, trust me. I mean, it, it was way better than the stuff we've got today, promise you. But, but anyway, this is the story of Gideon. In chapter 7 of Judges, we're told how the Lord commanded Gideon to winnow down his army from 22,000 soldiers to just 300. Fun fact, you know who comprised a majority of those 300? Men from Zebulun and Naphtali. That one's for free. It's got nothing to do with this. I just think it's cool that we're talking about them here and they were back there, right? But anyway, uh, back to Judges 7. Um, there in Judges 7, these 300 men used trumpets and torches to defeat the Midianite army. So what, so what happens is they stand up on the cliff above the, the Midianites. They've got their torches inside a, a pot. They break the pot, they blow their trumpet, the light comes on, the Midianites start fighting themselves, and Gideon and his army just stand there by torchlight and watch them burn. Right? He they utterly destroy the army, and they don't have to raise a single sword. That's what we're seeing here. And that's the kind of victory that Isaiah is promising in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And the results of that victory is what we see in verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
And I love how one commentator highlighted the significance of what's being said here in verse 5. A man by the name of John Oswalt noted that Isaiah uses the lesser to include the greater, and in so doing ensures inclusion of the total. If even the boots and the garments are being burned, we may be sure that weapons are disposed of, and even more surely, those who wielded them. You see, what, what's happening here is this defeat of despair that's promised here is promised in such a way as, as though it's already a done deal. It's, it's happened. It's good to go. It's a total defeat. And we need to see that God doesn't replace one type of oppression for another. He doesn't replace one type of warfare with another. He simply does away with warfare altogether. The enemy's uniforms and weapons are utterly destroyed as he destroys the enemies as well. And that's why we can find hope. This promised Messiah is the one who's going to once and for all bring peace. Real peace, shalom, is going to be brought back. This promised Messiah is going to remove the yoke of sin in order to remove the yoke of oppression. And that too should give us hope. And as we look to verse 6, we, we can see Isaiah give a promise of hope and that promise of hope has got a name and a face. And we can cling to that promise of hope. Take a look at verse 6 where Isaiah writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This verse here really is the pinnacle of our hope in this season of Advent. It points us to a very specific person. I want you guys to see this. First of all, it points us to a royal person. But the title king is never used. That may be because um, in the context of Isaiah's prophecy, the title king had been too tainted by sin and corruption of Ahaz and his contemporaries. Or maybe it's because Ahaz and his contemporaries serving as king were only that in name and title where this king, this promised leader, this promised Messiah would be everything that they weren't able to be. And this verse also tells us that this person will be born. He'll be born. We're, we're going to see in a second that this person will be a divine ruler, but this divine ruler is not merely God. You see, he's going to have the most human of all arrivals on earth. He's going to be born. So we can see that, that, that this expected king will be both human and divine. And the names, the, the titles that are given to this person underscore his deity and his reign. He's called the Wonderful Counselor. He'll have an unfailing depth of wisdom, the kind of wisdom that underscores um, that in weakness there's strength. In surrender, there's victory. In death, there's life. And this person is going to be called Mighty God. And there's no getting around this one because in the Hebrew, that's El Gibor. It, it, it is literally Mighty God. You can't get around it. It's the same text. It's the same two words that are used in Deuteronomy 10:17 and in Jeremiah 32:18 in reference to God the Father. This person here is described as God. And this person will be called Everlasting Father. And this is a little bit different too because kings were often referred to as the father of their people. But they were never everlasting. This king lives forever, which again speaks to his deity. And this person will be called the Prince of Peace. 
He's the kind of king that you would expect to see who's, who's bringing an end to despair. He's, he's bringing an end to war. He's bringing about the kingdom of peace that we're going to see as we move to verse 7. There in verse 7, Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He brings about a kingdom that is without end. This is an eternal kingdom. And this is a kingdom where peace is ever expanding, ever coming to fulfillment. This is the kind of kingdom that comes to exist when men have been reconciled to their creator. It's the kind of peace that exists when sin has been atoned for, where enmity has been removed, where we find peace with God. And we see even more about this as we continue on into verse 7 here. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So you've got to notice that this king will reign in David's throne which means that this king is a fulfillment of the promise that the prophet Nathan made to David back in 2 Samuel 7, 16. There God um, promised King David saying, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure for forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This promise from Isaiah further provides detail about the promise that was made to David. But what I can't have, what, what you just can't miss is the last sentence in verse 7 here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of this isn't going to come about because a man steps up and makes it happen. God is going to do this. So, so if you're talking about hope, if you're going to be thinking about hope, what I want to tell you is don't trust a man to bring it to you which means we don't pray, place our trust in kings or presidents or governors or elected officials or, or any leaders on earth. And in this Christmas season, we're not going to place our hope in gifts and gatherings. We're not going to place our hope in food or friends and family. Our hope has got to be in this promised king, this promised Messiah. Because these 10 words right here in this last sentence of chapter 9, verse 7, these 10 words make it completely clear that God is the one that's going to make this happen. It's going to be accomplished by God himself. And the statement itself should be a landmark for placing your hope. When I enlisted in the Navy um, back in 1998, the first job I had as an enlisted sailor was I was a quartermaster, which in the Navy means that you were a navigator. I navigated a, a destroyer. Um, and when we were out at sea on the open ocean, we would use solar and celestial fixes along with GPS and a few other tools to find the position of the ship. But as we pulled into, into the ports, as we got closer to land where there were hazards like reefs and sandbars and things like that, we'd switch over to visual fixes, visual uh, objects to find our position. We'd use fixed structures like lighthouses and water towers and things like that to help navigate the ship. We, we'd use buoys and, and lateral markers to identify the route that we would drive the ship. In channels, we'd use these things called channel markers. It, it's kind of hard to describe, but what it was is it was two poles, and they'd be lined up kind of like this. There'd be a lower one and a higher one, and they'd be in a line. And what you'd do is you'd work to bring those into a perfect line. And when they were in a line, you knew that you were dead center in the channel. And this verse here is like a pair of those channel markers. Because when we look at it, it can help keep our focus, our hope, where it belongs. Because if God has promised to make this happen, then you can be certain 
that it's going to happen. Men may fail you. God won't. God's not going to fail you. You see, the source of our hope is a promise that God made over and over, over multiple millennia. This promise we're looking at right here was made 2,700 years ago, but this promise was kept 700 years after that in a little town we call Bethlehem where a baby was born. The promise was kept when that baby was raised in the town of Nazareth in Galilee. You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise because Jesus is the king that every king of Judah and every king of Israel could never be. Jesus is God in the flesh, the God-man who stepped down from heaven, born. He was literally born on earth, born to a virgin, so that we could say that he was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the wonderful counselor who used all the wisdom of God to lead us back to himself. Jesus is the mighty God who stepped down from heaven, who put on flesh, who lived the perfect life. He died a sinner's death so that he could reconcile us to himself. He's the everlasting Father who reigns forever in heaven, constantly interceding for us at God's right hand. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who brought us peace by purchasing it with the blood of his cross. And he reigns forever on David's throne. His sacrifice brought justice by taking care of our sin problem with God. And it brought peace. And it's God's own zeal that made it happen. God made that happen. We didn't fix our sin problem. Jesus did. He's God. That's the hope of this Advent season. That's it. We talk about hope. That's our hope. Our hope is Jesus. And our hope looks forward to his second coming with anticipation when Christ returns to call us back to him, to be with him forever in heaven. So, as you start to feel that tension coming up in the hustle and the bustle and in all that's going on in this holiday season, let me tell you, don't put your hope in gifts. Yeah, I've got my list. There's things I want, but that's not where my hope lies. Don't put it in the music. The songs are great. I love listening to them. We've been listening to it for a couple weeks already. But don't put your hope in the Christmas music or the good food or the family gatherings. Put your hope in Jesus. Because that's what this season of Advent is really all about. I know it's cheesy. I, I know it's cheesy. But the, the old saying that Jesus is the reason for the season, it's absolutely true. Jesus is the reason that we're spending this whole time gathering together. So let's put our hope in him this December. Sound good? Hey, let's pray.